Reading from the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me as we pray? God, you're the one that has gathered us here, and you're the one that has preserved your words for thousands of years. And so we pray that you might open our eyes to see you this evening. Thank you for your desire to be our maker, redeemer, and friend. In Christ's name, amen. Real change, lasting change, deep change is hard, isn't it? It is hard. Um, I came across an article this week, and it was Forbes magazine, and they were talking about organizations and businesses that implement change, and said the truth is, only about 25% of the change that they implement stays. Well, I don't even know if it's that high in my life. Uh, personally, we all know it gets very difficult. And what you think about change has a lot to do with whether you'll become a cynical person or an exhausted person or maybe even a depressed person. Maybe it's because of a bad view of change that you see change as a one-time event instead of a progressive sort of thing. 
Or maybe you just haven't thought about the resources for change that you've been given. Those that study change will say that there are different phases to it, and before you get to the phase of action actually changing, there's a stage of contemplation. That is, before you can get the change into your life, you got to get it into your head. You know, think about it, maybe you decide you want to lose some weight. Well, typically what we do is we buy a book on losing weight, right? Because we, we want to prepare our minds. We want to understand what we're doing to change. Here in this chapter, we get um, a very deep, deep philosophy of change. One that goes down to the soul. And it's connected to this idea of what theologians call union with Christ. That is, that through faith, we become connected to God through Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual union that occurs, a bond that's unlike anything else. And that becomes the wellspring for change. It's a very different philosophy to change than we often find in books or in our culture, or on the self-help shelf. Now, there's been a lot of news this week about uh, the president-elect's appointments, and it's often the case when a president gets elected, whoever is connected to that president hopes that they'll benefit from it, right? Those that uh, were part of the victory hope that they'll get some of the spoils of the victory. Well, a similar thing could be said of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel says that Jesus Christ, everything that he achieved, his perfect life of love, his faithful life to God, his enduring enemies without treating evil with evil, his suffering for sin, his voluntary sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, all of those things he achieved for his people. For those that are in relationship with him, they benefit from what he has done. Just like when a child gets adopted into a family, all the assets of the family come, become theirs. Or a husband and wife get married, and they get one another's assets and one another's debts. He took on the debt, gives us the assets. This is what the gospel teaches. If I could give you a visual, I would say imagine a bicycle wheel. And in that bicycle wheel, there's a hub. And the point of a bicycle wheel hub is to bear the weight, bear the load. Well, union with Christ, in a sense, bears the load of all that God has done. Or maybe I could say it this way. Union with Christ is that hub, and all the spokes of the wheel are the things that Christ has done to save and redeem us. The fact we get adopted into his family, a spoke coming out of union with Christ. The fact that by grace we get justified as righteous in God's sight, a spoke coming out of the wheel of union with Christ. The fact that you and I can actually die to the things in our lives that dog us and live to the things that give us life. It's another spoke out of that wheel. And that's where we are tonight. The theological word is sanctification. We often say sanctification is what it means to become after the moral beauty of Jesus Christ. As you heard Mike say earlier. And here it's caught up in this phrase, what does it mean to be dead to sin and alive to God? And what that phrase, which may seem kind of confusing, means is that you can change. You can really change. 
In the first five chapters of this book of Romans, we've been learning what God accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. Now we're turning to what God accomplishes in us through Jesus Christ. So that's what I want us to look at. And the greatest task we have, believe it or not, is getting it in our head. We spend so much time thinking about change in, turn of, uh, change in terms of our lives. But we got to start somewhere else first. So what I want us to consider is the reality of what it means to be dead to sin and alive in Christ and the response, the reality and the response. So we'll start with the reality. Verse 5 and 6, if you want to follow again in the bulletin, you can. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here Paul is talking about the suffering and crucifixion on a Roman cross that Jesus Christ endured. And he said that that event accomplished two very significant things. One is in it, Christ was dealing with the penalty of sin. That is, uh, the guilt that comes from our moral failings. Our failure to love one another as we should, love God as we should, our selfishness that we battle with every day. That Christ was dealing with the penalty of sin, which the Bible would say is death. Now that sounds really severe. But think about it maybe this way. When a criminal um, is convicted in our justice system and they receive a sentence, even if that sentence isn't capital punishment or life in prison, they lose life, right? When you go to prison, you lose life. In fact, you know, in recent years, more criminals on death row have been volunteering to be executed because the idea of just living in prison, waiting for that, is like death to them, right? I mean, when you have to pay that penalty, there is a death involved. We acknowledge that. Well, think about it now much higher in spiritual. As we break God's law, and I think if we're honest, we know it's not just like every now and then. Um, we do it daily. You know, we fail to love daily those that are our roommates, our kids. I mean, it's just the way it is. The problem that we have. And as we break God's law, the penalty is death. It's physical and spiritual death. It's not totally out of the bounds of what we just talked about with our justice system. And this is why it's so important that Jesus didn't just suffer, but he died. Why it's so important that Jesus died. Because in his dying, he was taking death, the penalty of sin, upon himself for all those that, that embrace him. He was taking the sentence of judgment. But there's another part of this as well. That his crucifixion and his death wasn't just dealing with the penalty of sin, it was dealing with the power of sin, the ruling power of sin over us. The fact that we're not liberated. Jesus wrestled the power of sin to the grave and he defeated it. So it would no longer have power over those that get into relationship with him. 
This is what we're told. We're in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Liberation. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. For the death he died to sin. He took the death of sin and he killed it. He put to death that judgment and guilt. This is what the gospel teaches. And his resurrection was the verification that he accomplished those two things. That the penalty was paid and the power has been broken. Now, I had to think about a scene in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and it, you know, it occurs at the end of the first film, uh, second film. It's when Gandalf, the wizard, meets the Balrog. If you've seen this, you know, it's, the Balrog is a very scary creature. Uh, the, the Balrog is an ancient demon from, you know, the deep. You know, he's, he's kind of like this flaming dragon. And so uh, Gandalf meets him, and as you remember, they're on the bridge, and the fellowship's there, and he begins to fight this Balrog, and they fall off the end, and like the movie ends, and we're like, wow, what happened there, right? Well, you can read what happens. It says it somewhat in the two towers, but if you read what Tolkien writes, it's really wonderful. Uh, Gandalf explains what happened. They say, Gandalf, what happened? Because they see him resurrected. You know, uh, we're told in some of the other writings of Tolkien that the supreme being Uru, I think if you say that right, raised him, resurrected Gandalf. But here's what happens. He says, long I fell and he fell with me, the Balrog. His fire was about me. Then we plunged into the deep water and all was dark. Cold it was at the tide of death. And then once that, uh, you know, the Balrog loses its flame, he said it was transformed into a slime, a slimy thing stronger than a strangling snake. And he pursues the Balrog up to the endless stair onto a mountain. And he says, I threw down my enemy and he fell from the high place and broke the mountainside where he smote it in his ruin. Then darkness took me and I strayed out of thought and time and I wandered far on roads that I will not tell. Well, what is fiction was reality in the gospel. Jesus Christ took death down the mountain and he defeated it. And we're told actually elsewhere that for three days, Gandalf was in a trance. Well, for three days, Christ was in the grave and he's raised to life and death no longer has dominion or power. And if you are a believer in Christ, you were there. You might remember the wonderful spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The gospel teaches, in a sense, you were with him on that cross, and you were laid next to him in his grave. Because you, even, and this is, gets us into time and eternity, and it's hard to understand, what do you mean I wasn't even born back then? You know, God doesn't operate on the time that we do. But that you, by faith, are united to that event that occurred. This is what the gospel teaches. And there are a few ways that Paul tries to reinforce this to us. One, he gives us the image of baptism. Now, the focus here isn't on the mode of baptism. If you're here, you've seen we sprinkle people in a Baptist church, they dunk them. That's not what Paul's concerned about here. He doesn't even mention water. 
Baptism represents dying and living. That's what he's talking about here. The mode is the death of Jesus Christ and his rise, and, and the time and place isn't the day of your baptism. The time and place was Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's the baptism that he's talking about here, Christ being baptized into death. And why is this so important? If you've hung with me this far, why is this so important? Because the command to die to sin can only happen after you've been dead to sin. The command to die to sin can only happen if you are already dead to sin. In verse 11, look at this with me. Verse 11, it says, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, there's an imperative verb in that sentence. You know, imperative verbs are the ones that are like, Go! Exclamation mark. Run! Exclamation mark. You know, that's an imperative verb. Now, you would think, in our mind, we think the imperative there is like dying, die, live. But you know what the imperative verb is there? It's consider. It's remember. It's reflect. It's understand. That's what he's saying here. In verse 14, Paul doesn't say sin shouldn't have dominion over you. He says sin will not have dominion over you. It will not. In the New Testament... Before you and I, the Bible says that before you meet Jesus Christ, you are dead in sin. And after you meet Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin. Because you have been united with him. To put it another way, you and I are not waiting to change. We are not trying to change. The change has accomplished. We need to apply the change. That's what the gospel is saying. That God has accomplished the change. The thing that broke the power that wouldn't let us change. He's put it to death. And yes, you and I are going to struggle until we see God in time and place. That's a different story. That's a different sermon. But the bottom line is this. The problem you and I have is we spend all our time trying to apply the change when we, we, we really haven't reckoned with what a radical change has taken place what God has done in our lives, the power that has been broken. And how big of a change is it? Is it just the spiritual part of me? Is it just the easy kind of sins that I struggle with? Or is it deep in identity? And Paul answers that. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, in that it sounds like this old self, whatever he's talking about there, that old self and the body of sin are the same thing, but they're not. First of all, the body of sin, that is not the Bible saying that the body and the physical body is sinful. You know, Greek, Greek dualism will teach that, other religions, but the Bible says that the body as God made it is good and wonderful. As John Mayer saying, your body's a wonderland. As I've said before, that gets more difficult for me to affirm as I see myself in the mirror. But my body is a wonderland, I'm told. But the body of sin is just a small microcosm. This thing, when he's talking about the old self, he's talking about the whole self. And this is why this is significant. It's not just because the things that you and I struggle with, psychologists tell us this all the time. You know, you've got, you and I have the symptomatic stuff we struggle with. The anger, the addictions, right? 
And we, we try to manage them and do what we can, but the, the psychologists are always trying to get to the deeper root, right? The deeper thing that's going on here. But once you're at that deeper thing, the question is, well, what do I do now? Okay, now I see it's this deep issue, but I still can't change. And what the Christian gospel says is that the deepest part of who you are, the most foundational part of your identity, God has affected change in you. That he has done this, the whole self. That's what he means by that. You know, uh, to put it positively, the New Testament would say that you are a new creation. That you are a new self. That you are born again. So instead of you and I going, I wish I could change this part of me, we need to first say Christ has changed all of me. He has changed the whole of me. I am not what I was before. He has affected a change in me. And so being dead to sin doesn't mean slowly moving away from sin. It doesn't mean like the day I was baptized, I renounced, I was going to not sin anymore. It doesn't mean that sort of gradually renouncing things. To be dead in sin means that Jesus put that to death. It's done. It's a one-time act that he did. Theologians will talk about two parts of sanctification. One, and you kind of see it in the catechism question we put in the reflection, one is the progressive side, where more and more, as I have effort, we're going to get to the effort next, I make effort. And I got, you know, I make effort and God changes me through that. But before that, there's something called definitive sanctification. Some of you have heard me use this analogy before, if you've seen a marionette. The Bible says that before you and I come to know Christ, we are influenced by three things. The culture and the world and its values, my own inner selfishness and flesh, and yes, there's a spiritual force, the devil. That you and I are influenced by these three things, and it's like a marionette with strings, you know, and this is kind of how we're doing. And then Christ comes along with a giant pair of scissors and he cuts those strings. Now, I mean, it takes a, a while to learn some new steps, right? Because <laughs> we've been dancing in these steps for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But you've got to understand the strings have been cut. The death has been dealt. This is why this understanding of change is so different. But what, how do we respond? There's three things I'll say. One is we, if you understand what has been done for you, by faith, quite apart from you. It's been his work before it was ever your work, if you understand that. There are three things at least that will hit you. One is we will treasure grace and not abuse it. We will treasure the grace given and not abuse it. This is where Paul starts. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. So basically, he's dealing with a hypothetical question. Paul has been preaching up till now this incredible gospel that we are not saved by our moral works. We could never be. That God does this amazing thing, and through the works of his Son, he accepts us completely unconditionally, and we appear before him blameless and holy completely by grace and mercy. This is what he's been preaching. This amazing grace. And so it leaves a question. People say, well, wait a second. Doesn't that leave the door open for a moral living? If you tell people God accept, accepts them unconditionally and shows them grace, won't they just do whatever they want? 
And Paul comes back and he goes, if you really grasp what's been done for you, it, you would never really ask that question. Um, you know, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he lived in the 1600s. Um, he was once imprisoned uh, with some other religious people because they refused in England to allow the state to ordain them. They said, no, the church needs to ordain. This is like when you went to prison for theology. You know, it's, it's sort of a different day where theology was so much in the mix, you could actually go to jail for your bad theology. I mean, it makes us wonder, you know, well, I'll just stop there. You know, how we would do, right? Um, but he, he, he understood the grace of God. In fact, his autobiography was called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. This is one of his quotes. Great sins do draw out great grace. And where guilt is most terrible and fierce, there the mercy of God in Christ when showed to the soul, appears most high and mighty. Now, some of the other guys in that jail didn't buy into that. They were Anabaptist, and they said to him, they would, they would argue about theology to the wee hours in the morning. Some of you could think, man, that's prison. I'm not only in jail, but then I have to argue with people about theology, right? That is prison. But they would say to him, listen, if you keep assuring people of God's love, they'll do whatever they want. And this is how Bunyan responded. If I assure God's people of his love, then they will do whatever he wants. I mean, you know, it just makes total sense, doesn't it? If someone has showed you tremendous grace in your life, has forgiven you of a huge debt, if someone has dived into the Potomac and pulled you out of the water, I'm doubtful the first thing in your mind is, how can I get over on them? How can I get away with something? You know, that it just doesn't compute. Your heart has been won over. So this is the challenging thing. You know, in those areas of life where you and I are struggling, the problem really is our understanding of grace for obedience. They, you know, that's where you have to start. You have to go, what is it about the grace of God that I am not getting where I just keep doing this? That's where Paul is pressing. So, one, if we understand what he's done for us, we treasure grace, we don't abuse it. Second of all, we live as free men and women. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Sin has no dominion. Anybody that has lived in a dictatorship, last night as we were at the persecuted church and, and um, people began to talk about, Mona included, just, you know, uh, the bombs and the missiles and the blown out cities and people's crops getting burned and all, you know, this literally hell on earth that you're thinking about. You know, anybody that has been removed from that into a land that is free, they would go, amen. That's a good thing. Do you understand that your life apart from Christ is that first one? You know, you're really not free. We, we, prize freedom in this country, and rightly so. But you can be politically free and financially free and intellectually free, and I'm not dogging those things, but still not be free. I mean, soul free. I mean, this is sort of the irony. You know, we have freedom to do whatever we want, but our pleasures master us, so much so that they'll become addictions. Right? I mean, we have freedom to do, but be in whatever relationship and how many relationships and get out of this one and get in that one, but we're hollow and empty. Freedom in and of itself doesn't solve anything. The freedom that the gospel is talking about 
is to actually be free to love people, free to be selfless, free to not to have your freedoms rule over you. You know, in that sense, uh, you know, to be able to put yourself on hold. You know, if I'm like sort of really angry at somebody and losing it like I do, and like I have with my family, I'm not really free. You know, one, one person wrote a song and they said, freedom's not the power to, what, to do what we want to do, it's the power to do what is right. That's freedom. And so this is what the Bible says, Galatians. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. You know, we, we've... Um, I've talked about this before when we talk about sexuality. You know, a big conversation in our nation is about consent. And that's very appropriate, right? You can't abuse people's consent. But the Bible goes deeper than that. The Bible goes, you know, you can still take advantage of someone if they give you their consent. You know, someone, someone that's old in age might give their consent to someone who rips them off. It's deeper than consent. It's freedom to love. First Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, honor the governing powers. I mean, this is a wonderful challenge today, right? Anytime there's an election, will my freedom enable me? It doesn't mean I can't disagree with things or protest, but it does mean do I have freedom to honor because I trust in God and his work? Okay, we live as free men. Last thing as I close. With confidence, we offer our whole selves to righteousness and not to sin. Paul says about this idea of being instruments of righteousness. Now, I came across this song, um, Dead to Me. Anybody know this song? About Melanie Martin Martinez? Okay. Well, maybe, she'll, maybe some, a few of you will look it up. You know, I wasn't, she's not on my playlist, okay? But I, I, I sort of came across these lyrics and I thought, all right, I'm going to read these lyrics. And I'll warn you, it's sort of uh, in the genre of the, um, the vengeful ex relationship, okay? Dead to sin, uh, dead to me. I'll shed a tear with your family. I'll open up a bottle, pour a little bit out in your memory. I'll be at the wake dressed in all black. I'll call out your name, but you won't call back. I'll hand a flower to your mother when I say goodbye, because, baby, you're dead to me. I need to kill you. That's the only way to get you out of my head. Oh, I need to kill you to silence all the sweet little things you said. I really want to kill you, wipe you off the face of my earth. Scary if you're the boyfriend, okay? but a pretty good summary of how you and I ought to be thinking about sin. We, we are to have that idea that you are dead to me. You're dead to me, and I need to kill you in my head. What does it mean not to offer yourself to sin? It means my imagination, my daydream, the thoughts that I comfort myself with, my talents, my achievement, my desires. I will not give sin those things. I won't allow it to captivate me because I'm free. But rather, I will give those things to what is true, right, and good, righteousness, God's kingdom, 
When Paul says, do not let sin, do not let sin, do not let sin, do you hear what he's saying? You're in control. I mean, we're all control freaks. But we kind of go about it the wrong way. God is saying that you don't have to keep doing what you're doing. And you need to tell yourself that. Because I know the same, in the areas of my life where I keep doing what I don't want to do, my life preaches against me. And this is why it's so important to have a salvation outside of yourself. What, God is, what Christ has done for you is in you, but it is not bound by you. You know, his work is superior. His work is apart from you. And so I can make that change. So, I want to invite you, if you've never thought about this before, but even if you have, to think about what your change philosophy is and invite you to something that is truly life-changing, this gospel. So, let's pray. Thank you uh, for your desire, God, that we not self-destruct. Thank you for your desire that we flourish. Thank you that your son self-destructed so that we might live. I pray that you would help each of us in the area where we struggle to be liberated by the truth of your gospel. In Christ's name, amen.